Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Anwa Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading experts for a lively discussion on topics related to strategic nuclear deterrence. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the hosts and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another exciting episode of NucleCast. Of course, as always, I am your host, Adam Lowther, and today we have, from 15 hours ahead, all the way from Australia, Dr. Christine Leah, who is, of course, a fellow at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. She is a graduate of the Australian National University, and she is one of Australia's leading Onophiles, at least that's what she tells me. And so we are going to have a discussion today about extended deterrence, the Asia Pacific, and China. And we're going to have that discussion from an Australian perspective. So, with that, Christine, thanks for joining us. Hey, Adam. Thank you so much for having me. Well, so it's, you know, it's not that often that we have folks from literally halfway around the world on the show, but we thought it, given all that's been happening over the last week or so, that having you on the show to discuss a perspective that is not one we normally think about. We, we oftentimes think about our own perspective as Americans and how we see the world. And so it would be great to have the views of one of our closest allies, the Australians, and you being an Australian, living in Australia, who is a political scientist by training and works in the discipline, we thought it would be great to have you give us the view uh, from down under. So with that, as we take a look at, you know, the prospects for conflict over Taiwan. We looked at, we look at China's growing assertiveness, and then we look at regional allies and for the United States trying to figure out how those regional allies might participate or how they will view uh, a potential conflict between China, Taiwan with United States at play. And then the U S would of course look to have Japan, South Korea, the Philippines, Australia, you know, participate in the defense of Taiwan. And then how we do we manage deterring China such that hopefully that conflict never happens? You have, you know, you're, you have a very unique perspective that is not our own. And so as you look at these big issues, how do you see them? And then how do you think that, you know, across, you know, sort of broadly speaking, Australia sees these issues and then, you know, that sort of that regional perspective. Totally. Um, and again, thank you so much for having me. And it's a tremendous honor to be working for NIDS. I, I'm, I'm so grateful. And it's a great organization that's really encouraging. And, you know, um, so, so I come at it from a historical perspective because I'm a historian by trading or like to think I am. Uh, so I studied, <laughs> I, I, my PhD, um, 
at the Australian National University, I studied the history of Australian thinking about nuclear weapons and strategy and extended deterrence, uh, which is a very interesting history and not well known. Uh, so extended deterrence is always, Australia has always had a complicated relationship with Australia, extended deterrence. In Western Europe during the Cold Wars, it was relatively simple in that, you know, the US needed to reassure allies there, you know, and then there was sort of a full spectrum extended deterrence model, whereas where you have US declaratory policy, you have US troops stationed in country, you have US nuclear weapons stationed in country. Australia never had that form of extended deterrence and neither did Japan or South Korea. The reason being, well, one of the reasons being that the Asia Pacific was never at the front line of the Cold War. Okay, yes, North and South Korea and China, but overall the strategic competition was between the Soviet Union and the United States. Asia kind of got the leftovers of extended deterrence. So extended deterrence was more of a global construct. It wasn't directly aimed at Asia in that Asian powers didn't need the same levels of reassurance that Western Europe did. So for that reason, Japan, South Korea, Australia weren't really interested and or didn't really understand the operational requirements of extended deterrence, like the things I just mentioned before. But there was, and during the 90s and the early 2000s, when, when you know, New Start and sort of going below, the idea of going below 1500, there was some uncomfortableness expressed around that. So, so, so there was a notion that we needed something, the, the, the Allies needed something, but they weren't sure. But now that strategic competition is arguably shifting to the Asia Pacific and over Taiwan, it'll be interesting to see how the extended deterrence relationships changed. And already in, I can't remember the exact year, but around 2010, Japan and South Korea got their own bilateral extended deterrence dialogues with the United States. But Australia never got that. And perhaps Australia didn't need that. So it'll be interesting to see going forward. Yeah, so yeah. for South Korea, for South Korea and Japan, you know, their the proximity is much closer to China. Australia sort of has the the benefit, I mean, besides the United States, of course, of being a bit further away from China. So do you feel, you know, amongst Australian, the Australian public, is there a, a sense of uh, perceived threat uh, from China? I know that, you know, there's some great um, I can't think of the name of the TV show, but there's a great TV show that's uh, an Australian show that, you know, China penetrates the Australian government and there's, you know, conspiracies and, uh, you know, it's it's just one of those sort of great traditional spy shows. And so there is sort of this, you know, popular perception of what is the China threat and 60 Minutes Australia, some of the best videos that I watch on to try to understand China come from 60 Minutes Australia. So clearly Australia thinks about China. But is there a sense of growing threat that, you know, is is clearly present in the United States? Or is is there sort of a general Australian view that differs from our own? Well, I'd be really interested uh, to know how the general American populace thinks about these issues, because 
there's not a lot of debate in Australia generally about conflict over Taiwan. You start to see some op-eds recently. Uh, there was a series recently called Red Alert, uh, and one of the authors, sort of warning about the China threat, one of the authors is Peter Jennings, who used to work at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. Uh, so some are trying to generate a debate, but Australia, well, Australia has a, an interesting strategic culture, right? Go back to the 1700s, get some British people, chuck them on the other side of the world in the middle of an Asian region. It is not an Asian country as such. With the, the Australians have always been attached to the dominant Western maritime power of the day. Before it was Great Britain, after the Second World War, Australia turned to the United States for an alliance protection. So there's general support for the alliance, but there's not, there isn't a national debate about what might happen, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Is it's an it's an interesting you know question because as the United States has its you know its allies and and if you take Australia and New Zealand New Zealand has sort of been this country that's an outlier amongst the United States you know allies in the Asia Pacific where it's sort of pursued a, a path of its own while still remaining an ally of the United States. And as I, as I follow Australian politics, there's been some debate here lately, uh, at least, you know, from what you see in the press over, you know, the role that the United, that uh, the United States and in Australia should play with each other in terms of, you know, hosting troops. I mean, we've, the United States has stationed more Marines in Australia than it has, historically, but the role of nuclear weapons and Australia's tolerance for those nuclear weapons and then Australia's confidence in the United States, at least under the current government, and the current government seems to be, you know, wavering on its view of are nuclear weapons okay? And I think that's, you know, sort of a standard labor position. And so, as the United States thinks about how to think about Australia and Australia's role, it's one where I think for many Americans and those of us in the sort of defense and foreign policy community, it's hard to sort of pin down Australia and, and then think, you know, two years, five years, 10 years of where Australia may be. And so as we think through a potential conflict over Taiwan, it's certainly hard to say what role Australia might play beyond a potentially a logistic staging ground or something to that effect. And I, I don't know how, how do Australians see themselves in thinking through, you know, a is that, is the, you know, this idea of a potential Taiwan conflict, is that something that is on the minds of many Australians or is it, sort of an afterthought, because it seems to be growing in resonance here in the United States. Yeah, you bring up some great uh, issues and topics, Adam. Uh, so New Zealand is very interesting. Um, Australians don't really consider New Zealand to be a country, but that, that's a different <laughs> story. Um, 
So New Zealand was interesting. So back in the 80s, I don't know if you remember, there was a big debate about US nuclear armed submarines <clears throat> passing through New Zealand waters. And the government at the time was quite anti-nuclear and New Zealand sort of always has been to varying levels throughout history. But there was a big debate about extended deterrence and nuclear weapons. And from the New Zealand perspective, they wanted the alliance and extended deterrence, whatever, conventional nuclear, but they didn't want nuclear weapons as part of the package. And the Australian government right. at the time rebuked that and said, no, we can't pick and choose. It is a nuclear alliance, fundamentally. Um, and so from a historical perspective, so I looked at, I spent a lot of time in the National Archives going through the history of Australia thinking about this. So after the Second World War, there was a plan for Australia to acquire nuclear weapons, either developing with allies. So the British did some testing uh, in, in, in Maralinga and other areas, um, or to acquire them independently uh, by establishing, you know, an independent nuclear industry. Uh, that's one of the reasons the Australian National University exists was for that purpose, the Research School of Physics. Um, because at the time, so Second World War has ended, Australia had been bombed by the Japanese, China and Indonesia were seen as pressing threats and we needed nuclear weapons to deter them because Australia couldn't do it conventionally. At the same time that Australia tried to acquire nuclear weapons, Australian officials were asking US government officials like Robert McNamara, hey, this extended deterrence business, can you can you give us some insights into your war fighting plans for the for the Asian region? You know, so Vietnam, etc. When and where are you going to use nuclear weapons? Because we need to know such things in order for us to plan our own war fighting plans. But the Americans weren't forthcoming at all in the same way that they were with Western Europe. So that's that further reinforced the idea, oh, Australia can't rely on the United States the way we would like to. So we acquired nuclear weapons for various reasons, technological, political, it didn't end up happening. And the Whitlam, the Whitlam Labor government at the time in 1974, 73, rat eventually ratified the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And about at the same time, there was sort of a realization, oh, China and Indonesia can't actually project power down, right down to us. So the threat kind of changed. Australia felt more or less secure. Nuclear deterrence was something that the superpowers did and holding up a certain global order. It wasn't directly relevant to Australia anymore. But it'll be interesting to see how things evolve now that the Asia Pacific arguably is the new center of gravity between superpowers and superpower competition. And what's fascinating is that it's a tripolar great power competition. So how do you do extended deterrence with two nuclear peers that might have more nuclear weapons than you do? And do we do it? Does the United States have the appetite to do that again? To do nuclear strategy, to do extended deterrence? I'm not sure. It's interesting. Well, unfortunately, it's that time in the show where we have to take a quick break. Uh, so we're talking to Dr. Christine Leah, and we will be right back.
This episode of NucleCast is brought to you by the ANWA Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Dr. Christine Leah. And before the break, we were you had just started to to discuss our the current perspective on tripolar deterrence and on you know whether the United States can be seen as a reliable ally at a period in which it doesn't seem and this, you know, with presidential elections is like elections in in any democratic country that can always change based on the outcome of elections but it at the present time it doesn't seem to be that the united states has much appetite for maintaining parity with russia and china and you know with new start participation has been suspended by the russians and we're at so we're at parity in strategic forces with the russians but when it comes to uh, non-strategic tactical uh, theater, whatever term you pr- prefer, we clearly are inferior to the Russians. They have, you know, two to six thousand, whereas we have a couple of hundred. Uh, they have, you know, a dozen systems. We have, you know, in Europe, one primary system and delivery uh, weapon and delivery system, and so now we have. China, which is expected to grow from what, you know, the the uh, intelligence community estimated was a couple of hundred. They now say, you know, we're there at 400. They say they'll be at 1500 within a, about a decade. And so understandably, Australia, Japan, South Korea, uh, the president um, of South Korea said in January, perhaps South Korea needs to go nuclear uh, so there's there's clearly a lot of internal dialogue and thought that's going into this question of how good is American extended deterrence now and then, of course, in the years ahead. And so can you maybe talk about what are some of these discussions that are that are happening, you know, in the Australian public and, uh, you know, across the, you know, the think tanks and universities? What is the debate that's going on in terms of the view from Canberra and Sydney and Melbourne in terms of the Americans and and their commitment to the region? Yeah, sure. Uh, There's actually not a lot going on. And part of that is that Australia just doesn't have the strategic community that the United States have, you know, the Beltway, the other think tanks in the in, in California. There's only a, a and even worse, there's not a lot of nuclear scholars. So nuclear strategy isn't really a discipline in Australia. I I, I was lucky enough, I had Professor Desmond Ball, uh, who wrote about command and control issues in a nuclear exchange. Uh, so he taught me 
the, the logistics of nuclear strategy. Um, there's a couple of other scholars. Uh, Rod Lyon is tremendous. He's also at the Australian Strategy Policy Institute. He was my lecturer when I was an undergraduate. He writes about the dwindling credibility of US extended deterrence, given the things I've said and others. Uh, one of the other main voices is Professor Hugh White, who is at the Australian National University. And he brings up an interesting point, which historically is consistent, um, is that there's not a lot of there's not a lot of debate in Australia about the operational requirements of extended deterrence, as, as you've alluded to, and that, that Western Europe got to have, because there's a more a more fundamental question, which is the the numbers don't matter so much. You don't they matter less than U.S. willingness to sacrifice blood and treasure for Japan, South Korea, and Australia, when especially it won't do it for Ukraine. Why would the U.S. go to war with China over Taiwan for something that's not really fundamental to a, America's interests, which, you know, we can debate, uh, but, but that's the bigger question. Yeah. Is there, so in, is there a, you know, a discussion that distinguishes sort of why is Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania different than the Ukraine? You know, it's, it's NATO treaty allies versus, you know, Ukraine, not a treaty ally. And therefore, you know, do, do Australians say, well, you listen, they'll, they'll fight for, for uh, NATO members under an article five. And we're, we're, you know, we're like NATO. We're not like the Ukraine because we're a treaty ally with a mutual defense treaty. Is, is that sort of level of granularity part of the discussion or is, is sort of Europe, Europe and, you know, the Americans should sort of fight for, will they fight for any Europeans? Yeah. So everyone knows that Ukraine is not a treaty ally. It's, it's a bigger cultural question, mm. unfortunately. Uh, yeah. Look at how much the United States did in the early years of the Cold War. Look at how little it's doing now in the Asia Pacific, now that we're entering into competition with China. Not the same level of commitment. And one wonders, does the United States want to do that again? Do they want to do another Cold War? Because there are going to be more because nuclear weapons exist. It, it's a, there's, there's, there are questions in Japan, South Korea, and Australia, and even New Zealand. And so if, confidence in the Americans wanes and you know the Australians South Koreans and Japanese have to think what do we do is what is the alternative is the alternative to you know accept a hierarchical you know middle kingdom system or is it something else or are you know are the is there a desire for you know, CETO, uh, I mean, because APEC and ASEAN are, are not really defense packs, but is there a, you know, I don't know if you want to call it a CETO or call it a, you know, 
something different, but is there a desire for that kind of an organization in, in Asia or what, what is the alternative or the, the aspirational goal? There is a lot of, well, it's mostly Hugh White, which, which brings up those, he brings up these questions and rightly so, but he's, he's made quite unpopular for it, which I think is unfortunate because debate is always healthy. Uh, Historically and culturally, Australia absolutely wants, and so do South Korea and Japan, they want the United States to be the dominant, well, I shouldn't say dominant, but they want the United States to be the manager of the region, so to say. Uh, there's not much appetite for an alternative. I'm just not convinced there's been a lot of thought about where Australia wants to be long term, because it's it's kind of a, uh, how would you say, artificial arrangement, right? Like you have the United States projecting power to the other side of the world. That's not entirely a normal thing to do. Not entirely normal. Sure. Um, sure. And, and, and one wonders, you know, is this sustainable? And given, you know, the logistics that are required to project power in the Asia Pacific, I mean, just look at the geography. Sea control is a lot harder to do than sea denial. So, I mean, just the logistics of it, one wonders how committed the United States is. And given that the war in Ukraine is going on and there's articles in Defense News talking about the industrial base not being able to keep up uh, yeah. with the provision of muni munitions to Ukraine. So I think we're in for a wild ride for the next, at least the next two decades. Hmm. Now, we in the United States, we had a member of Congress, given the buildup of, of U.S. forces on Guam, who was concerned that uh, this expansion of U.S. forces could cause the island to tip over in, into the ocean. Is there any concern that the expansion of U.S. forces in Australia could cause Australia to tip over, particularly since the the Marines are in the north of Australia? Is that a concern at all? Are you saying physically tip into the ocean? <laughs> Correct. Yeah, that, that was the concern. I, I'm, I say that in jest, of course, but... Um, well, yes and no, you know, but, that, but not Australia specifically, <laughs> but the Pacific Islands. Climate change is a massive issue. And this is a, a, a very important point about uh, US-China competitions that most countries in the region don't see it as a, they're like, what's going on? Why are you doing this? The, the, mm -hmm. There's this concept of strategic cultures. It's, it's, it's the way a nation can think based on its geography, its history, religion, cultural values, etc. Some countries don't care about democracy, like Cambodia. They're just not interested. Sure. Um, sure. Other countries don't see it in a, in bipolar terms like like india india you know historically it was in the non-aligned movement and india will look after india it will work with russia because it needs russian arms um ashley tellis was a uh, was giving a talk about this he's a he's an indian scholar at the national bureau of asian research countries will look after their own interests they might not necessarily align with either china or the united states and the u united states needs to understand that, that, that 
fundamental different strategic cultures. And we see this in the Pacific. They don't care about US-China competition. They just don't want to sink. They want right. aid. They want right. investment. They're not that. And you'll, you will see. So we saw with the Solomon Islands, uh, Prime Minister Sogavare accepting Chinese security aid. The Pacific Islanders, they're not stupid. They will play off the United States and China. So this is going to be really interesting. Yeah, and it, you bring up a great point, and that is this this idea that you know we're the you you know the sort of uh, George Bush's you know you're either for us or you're against us, and in Asia there's there's a much broader perspective of hey we're your friend we're your trading partner, but we're not your ally, and and because there's this very clear desire to carefully manage the relationship with China because China's in the neighborhood. It's a big economic power and maybe, maybe it has the, you know, the military capability or maybe it'll get there with the United States, but it's certainly the biggest regional economy. And so therefore we don't want to make either the United States mad or China mad. And so therefore there's this sort of careful dance that's, you know, that's, that's done to, to do that. Do you think that that will sort of be a dominant position in the years ahead? Or do you think that there's going to be sort of a movement to, towards China, towards the United States, or more of a sort of, like you mentioned, an Indian perspective where it's, let's dance with both. I think for the, the US has been critiqued for not investing uh, economically in the region. I think if we see more of that, countries may be more amenable to assisting the US with other issues. Uh, but I think for the foreseeable future, unless the US steps up to its economic game in Asia, you're going to see that delicate tango between, yeah. Yeah. So if you, if I were to give you uh, the proverbial genie in a bottle and you rub that, that genie's lamp and you could make three wishes regarding Asian security, what would those three wishes be? The three wishes. Interesting. My three wishes. Oh, that's a tough one. <laughs> well, I think everyone wants to go back to the 90s, right? Hopium was pretty nice back then. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in a nutshell. Uh, yeah, I'd say go back to the 90s when, when China was not as ambitious as going for Taiwan. But unfortunately, that's not something that can be wished away because China has been an empire for thousands of years. This is, and if you look at it from their perspective, if you shift the map and you look at Taiwan from China's perspective, it's insulting to think that Taiwan could ever be independent. I mean, sovereignty is a massive issue in the Asia Pacific, especially in Indonesia, where there are sort of separatist movements going on. Um, I don't have three wishes, unfortunately. I'm, 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 I'm too much of a realist, Adam. <laughs> well, un 
with that, un- unfortunately, we are out of time. So if you were to give, and we'll make this be the last word, if you were to give, the, you know, the the listening audience of Nuclecast uh, a bit of advice, what would that bit of advice be? I would say, especially to <clears throat> Americans, learn about Asian strategic culture. It's very important. We don't all think the same way, and that's not a good or a bad thing necessarily. We have different histories. We have different cultures, different values. And it's really important to understand that as if the United States is serious about engaging with the region. All right. Dr. Christine Leah, thanks for joining us on Nuclecast. We appreciate it. And we'll uh, let you get to work now. Thank you, Adam. I look forward to getting into the office. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, now, listen, when you get to the office, make sure you take care of the TPS reports. I don't even know what that is. but (laughs) (laughs) Well, and thanks to you, the listeners, and we will see you on another episode of Nuclecast. Okay, so afterthoughts. Uh, Christine is really good to discuss the, the Australian perspective. And it's one where you often, as an American, sort of have to, because we, we tend to always assume that, you know, people think like we do. And it's like, hey, we're Americans. Why wouldn't you want, why would you think like we do? But in reality, even some of our, you know, our closest allies, like the Australians who, you know, I, I remember being in China once and I was the only American. And then I had, there were some Europeans, you know, Danes, English, uh, there was an Australian. And you realize how, when you're in China, you realize how similar you are to all Europeans and Australians and Kiwis and you realize that similarity by having the the difference China at, you know, sort of the juxtaposition. But, and I, I offer that analogy just to say that even though we are quite similar, we still have these differences in the way that we think. And so I really enjoyed talking with Christine to see how the Australians view us as opposed to the way we think they, they see us. And those differences are things we, we obviously have to consider. So, I don't know. It was a good, good discussion. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Prunthal. Follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Nuclecast. Listen, follow, and review the show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.